HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. My name is Kat Johnson, and we are live at Slow Food Nations in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we have a pop-up studio going on at the corner of Larimer Street and 14th Street. So if you're in Denver, come on down and see us. Um, we have, we're doing our second day of interviews. We were here all day yesterday. We're here today until 3 p.m., so just a few more interviews left. Um, and thanks so much to our sponsors, Hearst Ranch, the Julia Child Foundation, and our friend Julie Schaefer for making our coverage of Slow Food possible. Right now, I am joined by Mona Esposito. She's the co-founder of the Noble Grain Alliance, which is a nonprofit aimed at restoring heritage grains to Colorado and supporting and recreating the network of farmers, millers, and makers needed to make a regional grain economy thrive. And she's currently doing some consultancy work, and she is also known as the Grain Lady. Welcome, (laughs) Mona. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off by asking you, what is a heritage grain consultant? What does that work look like? Okay, good question. And it's definitely still evolving. But I think, you know, the core part of being a heritage grain consultant is education and outreach and really um, bringing understanding of what it takes to bring these heritage seeds back into our community and our local grain economies and to take them all the way through the processes necessary to bring them to your table. So it could be work with farmers, it could be work with chefs and bakers, um, it could be, an, you know, another another way I like to term myself is as a connectress. Mm. So it's bringing together all these pieces of the puzzle or we like to call it the grain chain. What's the biggest challenge or disconnect in that grain chain? The biggest challenge is with the, it's the infrastructure. So with the modernization and industrialization of grains and wheat as one of the monocrops that, uh, you know, post-World War II, the emphasis was really on yield and production and ease of harvest. So away from flavor, away from nutrition, with a focus on grains that could be highly processed, large volumes, uh, so when that happened, we lost the local, smaller infrastructure that's able to deal with the grains. And when I say infrastructure, I mean equipment. I mean the from right down to the combine to the seed cleaners, all the things that can get the grain to the miller. And then we also lost our millers. You know, in Boulder County alone, we had 12 mills in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now we 
we don't have any professional millers. Wow. Um, and then what is the Noble Grain Alliance that you helped found? Yeah, so Noble Grain Alliance uh, was founded a little over two years ago. Um, uh, it was co-founded with Kelly Whitaker. And our work was really to start at the beginning of the chain to restore these heritage grains. So really to begin with the seed uh, and to trial these grains, reintroduce them to farms and into their sustainable growing system, and then to take it all the way along the chain, all the way to reaching out to bakers and chefs uh, to use these grains. And what are some of the heritage grains that the Noble Grain Alliance worked to restore to Colorado or is working to restore mm-hmm. to Colorado? And, and then speaking to like the system, the infrastructure, what does it take to make that regional grain economy then thrive? Right. Okay. Well, uh, it was very fortuitous because at the same time that we were talking about reintroducing grains and working with farmers, uh, Nana Myers at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, um, was thinking the same thing and working in um, nutrition and sports uh, to bring back grains for their nutritional value and their flavor. Uh, So they had already been doing research at the university into what grains grew well in Colorado uh, and what grains were actually grown here. So they had been sifting through USDA documents, um, very detailed documents about the different varieties that were grown here. So that was one consideration. Um, And the other consideration would be uh, seed availability. So out of these documents, maybe there were 20 varieties that they determined would do well, but only two or three uh, had enough seed stock, seed grown out, where we could get our hands on enough seed to grow out an acre or two acres or nine acres. Most of these varieties um, have to go through the trialing process and the building up of seed stock, which can take three to five years to go from a packet of 25 or 100 seeds to enough seed to plant an acre of wheat to 80 or 100 pounds to plant. And what does, when when you have a strong local economy, Mm -hmm. when you've created that infrastructure Mm -hmm. and you're able to grow that grain, what does that do for bakers and for farmers and for the environment? How does it change, Mm -hmm. change the kind of ecosystem? Right. I mean, it's the ultimate uh, local food economy. I mean, it, it, it's, it has been the missing uh, ingredient of the farm to table movement and a really important community connection. I mean, ultimately, uh, I was just in the biodiversity summit talk, and there was a lot of discussion about flavor and nutrition and those things going hand in hand. So really, the, the conversation has to happen between the baker and the farmer, and there has to be this demand for flavor and nutrition um, that once was a part a normal part of, of how we grew our food and our food system. And you're an avid baker yourself. Yes. So what, like, if you're, if you're going to make the same recipe and you're going to use a commercially available flour or whole grain, and then you use something that is like, you know, heritage grain mm-hmm. grown in a way that is sustainable right. and, mm-hmm. you know, makes a more delicious product, how yeah. does that change the end product of any sort of baking you would do? Well, flavor is huge, uh, and, I, you know, I like to make the parallel 
to wine and grapes and varietals and terroir. So you can start to look at wheat and wheat varietals as having flavor, as having a sense of place, uh, and something to play with. When you go to the shelf and you get a bag of bread flour, it's been formulated to have a certain performance and to, achieve, you know, to, to perform a certain way. Uh, when you work with these heritage grains, you really you get to interact with them and you get to be very creative and, and the upside to that is the incredible flavor and the superior nutrition compared to modern varieties of grain. Because some of these commercially available flowers are, you know, produced to be very consistent, Mm -hmm. are there any, is there any advice you have for bakers who are trying to experiment and use different types of grains? Mm -hmm. If maybe it does, it's not going to behave exactly the same way it would in other baking projects. Uh, Well, you just, uh, you just try, try and try again. (laughs) My favorite uh, Italian expression is brutti ma boni. So it might not look good. It might get not get the oven spring and the lift and the crumb that you see on all the Instagram shots, but it's always going to taste good, and it's always going to have the flavor, and it's always going to have the the nutrition. So since you know a big part of your job is a connectress, yes. and it's all about you know building these relationships between people, mm-hmm. um, I was curious, you know, what historically. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're looking back pre-industrialization, what does the relationship at that point in time between a farmer and a baker look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, super local. Uh, there is this concept of the grist and the toll, where a farmer would bring the wheat that was grown to the miller. And as the toll, the payment would be in exchange for grain. So in that case, the miller was sort of the the middleman. Uh, And then that flour would be used, you know, depending historically when it happened for the town baker or or for home use. So there was this, you know, perfect connection among all the parts. Uh, And that just brings me to, to elaborate a little bit more, is that what I love about uh, these land race wheats is the story and I love that we are recreating the story returning to our stories uh, our food histories um, and then and then creating our own mm. within our communities and then you know you, you've spoken to this a bit but that you at one point we had a certain number of small mills yes. and millers and then we didn't what what happened around industrialization that mm. made that go away Lots of things. <laughs> uh, it was really just the, the, the first component, which happened earlier on, is that the processing, the milling equipment changed. Mm. So the introduction of the roller mill uh, demanded a different variety of wheat, a harder wheat. Uh, prior to that, there were a lot of soft, soft wheats were the predominant wheat grown. And then all of a sudden... The, the way that were available to process it required this different kind of grain that could withstand the pressures of these roller mills. Um, and then from there, everything just sort of catapulted into much higher production and much shorter processing. Uh, and really, you know, the, the most lamentable part is the refinement of grain, the, the taking out all the, the good parts of the grain. 
And can you kind of drill down into that too? Like, what does refinement mean? What do you mean when you're saying you're sure. taking things out? Yeah, so you're sifting out uh, white flour. Uh, is there are three parts? I'll, I'm going to get into it for you. There are three Let's parts of the grain: uh, the bran and the germ, which I'm sorry, sure you've heard of separately. You can buy germ. You see bran. Uh, put into other things. And then there's the endosperm, the starchy carbohydrate um, component. Well, the brain and the germ have all the nutrients, the lipids, the antioxidants, the fiber, uh, all the things that work in conjunction with the carbohydrates to make a complete uh, nutritional product. So looking to write what's happening right now in the movement and the work you're doing, mm-hmm. um, are there any projects you're involved in that you're particularly excited about and that are moving things back to that pre-industrial mindset mm-hmm. of grains? Yeah, well, slow food is very exciting. Uh, last year, uh, with the help of Noble Grain Alliance and Nana Myers at the university, uh, we were able to um, have a real presence uh, and create another category of slow grain, which was not a part of the Slow Food Conference before. So, uh, you know, a much greater educational awareness. I'm really excited to be a part of bringing people together here uh, from all over the country that are that are working to restore these local grains and all the pieces of the grain chain. Who are some people that are doing it the right way? Well, um, we're all doing it the right way because <laughs> we're doing it and we're all learning along the way and, and we all... Uh, there are a lot of similar challenges. You know, I think the infrastructure being the most difficult. Mm. Uh, but I just got back from a conference in uh, Bologna, Italy. The, it's the first international land-raced week conference. And that was really exciting to see uh, over 22 countries represented, all working on the same thing, all caring about their food and where it comes from. And So as we continue to push push for this movement to mm-hmm. happen in the future how do you how do you hope to see the relationship between the farmer and the baker either kind of rekindled or do you see it maybe working in a slightly different way than it did pre-industrialization I see it working much the same way really that there pre as it was before industrialization that there are these relationships between a farmer and a baker and that the baker goes to the farmer and says, you know, I'm really interested in, in these kind of qualities, and I understand that it's going to be different than what I'm working with, but, you know, I'm really passionate about flavor and nutrition, and so let's work together and let's develop a relationship. And then the farmer being able to rely on bakers uh, and consumers, you know, to take the risk to transition to some of these varieties that they maybe had not worked with before. I spoke to a chef recently who mentioned um, a model that he uses with some local farmers where it's like a guaranteed purchase. Mm. And he goes in and he says, you can take the risk on growing this this one ingredient or two ingredients for me because I guarantee that I will purchase all of it. Do yeah. you think that that's going to need to happen with, with farmers and bakers? I, I mean, I think that's ideal. Yeah. And, you know, there are already people in the community like Andy Clark of Moxie Bread Company who's working directly with growers in our community, with farms, and, uh, you know, guaranteeing that he, he'll buy the grain. Do you think millers could also play a similar, similar role since they could potentially be selling the, um, 
the flowers or whatever products to consumers? Mm-hmm. Could they also play that same role that a baker might? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, yes, it's a really delicate balance because you really do need all the pieces of the puzzle. You need consumer demand, uh, you need growers, you need to have the relationship, and you need all the parts in between, including the miller. And do you think consumer palates are changing to adapt to or embrace regional grains? I think there are people clamoring for these flavors. Uh, I think it's going to take time. You know, sometimes I, I do realize that I live in a little bit of a culinary bubble. Uh, but I do think there are people that are recognizing it. And really, it's, it's the bakers and the chefs and even the millers who really can provide the education and the outreach and the platform um, for people to explore these flavors and really understand what they can do with these wheats and, and how exciting it is, how it's, you know, not just this blank canvas of white flour, that they, they really has a, they have a palette available to them. That speaks to the last question that I had for you, which was, um, what role do you think bakers can play to help consumers accept local grain? So mm-hmm. do you think there are some specific ways that we can educate people? I think, you know, the, talking about the story, really, and bringing back the connection to the farmer and to where grains are grown, who grows them, how they're grown, and the entire process. Because a lot of people, including myself, you, know, you don't have a real concept of where flour comes from mm. and what's involved to get it to your table. Mm. Um, last question mm-hmm. is, um, tell us a little bit about the events that you're doing at this year's Slow Food Nations. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you finished with your events or do you still have some coming up this afternoon? Uh, pretty much finished. I'll be at the Taste Marketplace where Nana Meyer and I work together to coordinate a visual grain chain. So we have, uh, there are booths um, representing the farmer, the miller, the baker, and she has a great team from the University of Students uh, handing out samples, and there's a lots of educational materials and hands-on. There's, I'm not sure today it's happening with the rain, but yesterday uh, they were doing some hand threshing and winnow- winnowing of grain, uh, and, uh, and they had some corn and an old matate to grind the corn, an old stone. Awesome. Uh, so that's still to come. Yesterday, Nan and I co-led a workshop called the Whole Grain Experience. So all about integrating whole grains back into your everyday life. Wonderful. Well, Mona, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Noble Grains and the Noble Grain Alliance and your, um, what do you call it, an alter ego, the grain lady? The grain lady. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Kat. Um, We'll be right back with more um, interviews. We have, I think, two more interviews left at Slow Food Nations this year and just in time as the rain is starting. Be right back. 